Welcome to Direct Connections, where we explore workflow effectiveness through optimized information sharing and collaboration across robust real-time distribution technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Direct Connections, an IHSE podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thank you so much for joining us on this first episode of our show as we kick off a show where we plan to explore some of the innovative, connective, and collaborative technologies that are taking various industries to new levels. Again, if you want to explore some more IHSE content as you maneuver today's talking points, and uh, if you like what you see here and you want to find some more thought leadership from the team, make sure you're heading to our website, IHSE.com. Again, IHSE.com. And make sure that you subscribe to Direct Connections on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So on today's episode of the show, to kick off our thought leadership community, we're going to be exploring the workflows of media post-production, obviously a legacy industry with storied processes, platforms, and content. And just to set the stage for why we're wanting to have this discussion, if we rewind the clock, you know, let's say 20 years, it's a long time, but we've seen tech infrastructure in various production houses and newsrooms and broadcast operations have to prioritize things like low latency, higher resolution, uh, the uh, excuse me, the ability to handle massive file sizes, and also to create more uh, collaborative touch points across creative departments. But as the industry prepares to leverage further improvements in quality as well as media distribution, we wanted to pose the question of where can some of these legacy workflows and even the newer, more innovative workflows improve their day-to-day processes? And what's the reasoning, right? Why should we be looking to improve any of these workflows in the first place? Well, to help us explore some of the ways that cutting-edge technology can take the media post-production process and ecosystem to new heights is our first guest. I'm pleased to welcome Jim Pace. He's the owner of Audio Intervisual Design, which is an AV reseller, designer, and integrator providing tools for the creative community, leveraging their product expertise and technical support in the industry. Jim, great to have you on. How are you doing? Fine. Thanks very much, Daniel. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. I appreciate you taking some time today to share your thought leadership and pull from your storied experience in the industry. So let's go ahead and jump in. We've got a lot to break down. Uh, so you founded Audio Intervisual Design in 1983. You initially started running operations out of Record Plant Studios. Now we're almost 40 years from the company's founding. And so I want to rewind the clock and just further set the stage for what some of these key evolutions have been over the years, how that places us where we're at today, and then we'll get a little more granular on what today's workflows look like and where they could use some improvement. So again, let's rewind the clock. We're looking back 40 years. What are some of the ways that you've seen the broadcast industry and the broader uh, media post-production ecosystem uh, improve its workflows as the need for better quality and content demands also expanded? So again, some of those key improvements you've seen over the years. Sure. That's uh, rather... A broad, a broad sort of statement to to engulf the. When we first started, everything was an analog environment and tape based. Um, digitization uh, followed soon thereafter into the early 90s. Um, then after that, it was due to some uh, hard work and innovative thought process by people in uh, associated with Lucasfilm, uh, Dr. Andy Moore specifically 
the idea of a digital audio workstation and a video audio workstation uh, found some traction development and productization. Um, after that, it was uh, the concept of how to share information. Storage became important. And then after that, it was networking, network storage specifically. Um, our first systems were 100 meg networks and token rings, which were um, a challenge. The first hard drive, the first 40 meg hard drives required four people to lift and put into a rack. But obviously, you know, there's more processing power in my watch and in my phone than, than there was, uh, in, you know, some satellite technologies of those days. Um, after that, it became the idea that if, and this was pretty a pretty big leap, the concept that you could share storage also um, became the advent of the, the changeover for what we call machine rooms. Previously, there were few places that had machine rooms. They were all isolated, independent per room. Then a common machine room became comfortable based on the idea that you had to sustain power and air conditioning and things like that for large bits, bits of storage. And it also lends to this idea that if you could not only share storage, why not share processing power? So then the idea of sharing computers and computer space, whether they were massive parallel processing or something as simple as independent computers, um, the commoditization of computers overall lent itself to that. So that it was easy to buy lots of computers, uh, but then sharing this information and sharing how that worked became also a challenge. And the idea that you needed to extend and remote control for com computers, whether they be you know, keyboard, video, and mouse, and not in the same room, uh, not only for processing issues, but noise and things like that, because Post-production environments have to be as specific as possible and as advanced as possible. And uh, then KVM switching became something that was um, an attribute. So people could not only share storage, they could share processing and uh, computers and not have the, the, the onus of keeping distributed networks managed, powered, cooled, quiet, et cetera. So, and that's just, uh, accelerated now over the last you know 10 years you mentioned some work with lucasfilm i want to just follow up there a little bit uh in working with some of those leading broadcast and production companies in hollywood and the surrounding area uh how did the scaled production of working with those production hubs give you uh i guess a a larger perspective for how workflows can evolve as well as how the scale of that media production ecosystem can add new opportunities as well as new challenges to some of those workflows. Well, I mean, the basic concept is in post-production, um, regardless of the, the client, um, unless it's somebody working on their own projects, you sell time. You sell time in a space. And once that time has passed, it's not saleable anymore. So every opportunity to use the space and as you can understand, especially in Southern California, real estate is not cheap. So if you've got the space to do work in it, you've got to keep filling it. Now, if you have multiple rooms, if you've got four, eight, 10, 12 rooms, the last thing you want to tell a client is, no, we don't have space for you. 
just because room A is not available, we want to work in room B. And sometimes we want to work in room A and B. And if it's a, a feature film, as an example, we can have multiple rooms, multiple, not only just for sound and, and editorial, but also picture and editorial. So now you have the idea that all these rooms have to be capable of, of similar uh, processes at the same quality level. And sharing resources is the best way to do that. You can't have um, someone not having access to their media, and you can't have someone without access to the processing power to do that. So you wind up sharing, and whether they be in pods of groups of two or three or four or five rooms and, and operators, or it is, uh, or it is a much larger scale. Um, localization is a great example. When a title needs to come out in 32 languages, you're not going to do it. You're not going to have one room do it 32 times. You're going to have multiple rooms dealing generally with the same um, same locked picture, and you're going to have lots of languages and people having to do that post-production work. And that's that is with the advent of all the streaming services, which are multinational. That is um, a very specific opportunity where shared resources were increase the capability and actually even make it possible to have the business. Otherwise, you wouldn't be profitable. I really love that you intersected some of those timely, um, I guess, market demands and how those are influencing some changes in these legacy workflows. I want to also intersect how evolutions in technology have challenged these workflows. So if we look back again to those 40 years that you recapped for us, We've seen digital transformations to emphasize, uh, excuse me, to emphasize low latency, high resolution, file size maneuverability, collaboration across processes and departments, like you just mentioned. Uh, where have some of the legacy media production and media post-production workflows uh, been challenged or stretched thin as the surrounding technologies and uh, technology demands have also increased? And why, right? Where have they been challenged again and why? Well... Um, a couple of things that would come to mind. Um, the most, I, I'd say the most famous or infamous is security. Uh, with the idea of, of files being accessible and shared and resourced, uh, it also increases the chance of piracy. Um, I heard a presentation at, at a SMPTE some years ago, and the concept was if a feature film uh, can extend its security for even a seven-day run, it can mean as much as 50% of the box office. Um, this is major, major investments by people, and it's taken quite seriously. So the MPAA has taken the lead to help with that. Uh, that would That's one thing. Um, the other thing is probably, as far as, the, as far as a challenge goes, it is the um, standards. You need to have standards that need to be ubiquitous across multiple industries in order for people to, you know, we need a common currency to work in. And whether that be a specific manufacturer's product or uh, one of the great trade organizations like SMPTE or AES that sets standards, you need those things to come into play. ATSC is another one. And unlike commercial ventures, they really are uh, for the good of the industry and all the people in it. And those organizations are made up of people in the industry. And I'm always encouraged people to participate, to join those, those entities, because 
in effect, it really is the, the basis that all this works on. So luckily, AES has stepped forward to, in that respect, SMPTE has stepped forward, ATSC has stepped forward, and now we have standards to work towards so that there's a, you know, the idea that one manufacturer owns a marketplace is tough. It's very tough. And right now, I can, I can state without question that the parts supply issues that we're dealing with around the world are affecting everything we're doing. Um, so that causes delays, it causes, you know, design changes, it causes a lot of things that are affected by this. And if we didn't have standards, we would be even in a more difficult situation because if they're all using the same standard, then at least the, the chances are that parts and manufacturing can be leveraged across, you know, a number of different sources and resources. I, yeah, I think the last the last thing I would suggest is that the workforce has in post production has been traditionally a mix of staff, people, and independents. And just like everything else in our country, there are monopolies. Uh, you know, there are the more employers we have, the better. And Post-production and film and television production is probably one of the last resources where independents can actually sustain and survive. They're not necessarily forced out by one giant company owning everything. Um, it is a unique environment where everyone, where the large majority of people are freelance, which is, you know, a tough situation to be sometimes. And over the past two years, that's been, um, that's been exposed in some ways that we didn't think would happen before. You're doing a great job of teeing me up here for my next questions. Um, but again, I appreciate you intersecting the material shortages that we've seen over the last year. I think that speaks to just the lasting legacy impact of the pandemic on everything from supply chain to the workflows themselves. And that's what I actually want to intersect here for my next question is if we look back on this last year and a half, content and broadcast production took a very hard pivot as it was hit by uh, COVID restrictions and, again, hits to the supply chain and hits to demand, right? What consumers, what uh, B2B partners wanted out of their content. So we saw many films and TV shows take a hard pause. We saw news stations pivot to lower quality, uh, you know, Skype or Zoom style reporting and anchoring. Uh, and lower quality just being, right, it's not in studio, you're not using a 4K cam, right? Uh, and then digital media channels also reigned supreme and encouraged a lot of new entrants into the media production ecosystem with shorter form, more bite-sized asynchronous content. So I'm curious what you see as some of the long-term impacts to the post-production ecosystem and specifically post-production workflows because of some of these pandemic-induced pivots. What are your thoughts there? Sure. Well, um, as we all know, and this is a great example we're doing here, it's a, it's a whole new normal. Uh, working remotely is not abnormal anymore. It was predicted to happen some time ago, but it was extreme, accelerated extremely by the pandemic. And people are feeling more and more comfortable and capable of doing things remotely, which I think is a good thing for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, it's, it's the last thing I would suggest for somebody creating music, but that's a different story. Um, and as far as the pandemic goes, the, the, I mentioned things about security before. And in the post environment, uh, security was very, very uh, tightly managed. 
over the last year or so, I don't think that's been the case. I mean, people working remotely, I think um, that's not necessarily been, security has not been the priority. And I do suspect that that will change again. Uh, the first time something um, catastrophic, I'll say, or catastrophic to the owners of the media happened, I think this is all going to come back around again. So that's going to evolve. I do think that um, as far as supply chain and products and things like that goes, the uh, the key components are still going to have to be there. Um, technology moves forward. It's not just going to be lower quality. There is higher quality pushes in lots and lots of areas. Uh, 4K, HDR, Dolby Vision, Dolby Atmos, all those things are energizing the industry uh, in a way that um, is really uh, can be really profitable and a really big opportunity. And as far as... Um, you know, working the quality quotients, the, there's high quality going development as well as low quality development going. Podcasts and things would be more of a utilitarian, commercialized. How can we get to, uh, in content out? And there was a giant, there was a giant thirst for content with people working at home all the time. And that wasn't stopping. And I can also say that, especially the larger companies, uh, construction projects to build facilities never really stopped during the pandemic. That was uh, grandfathered in, into uh, an essential environment where construction was going on. It was done very carefully, and the projects we were involved with were managed very tightly and carefully with people's health in mind. Uh, it wasn't there wasn't any shortcuts on our watch. Uh, but again, that's just more expansive opportunities for people doing post um, and production as well. Now, of course, everyone had to wait for production to come back into into play in order for there to be something to post, but that didn't stop a lot of things. There was still a thirst for content. So when it came to those things, um, you know, and you're seeing the fruits of it now, I think the release schedule for a lot of the streaming companies now is about to explode, you know, just, just on the streaming companies alone. And of course, you know, the traditional broadcasters, uh, their move more toward things that aren't necessarily benefits for streaming like sports, that's leading edge technology. If you want to see the highest quality of broadcast, you look at live sports. That is uh, traditionally uh, a leader. And and things like the Olympics help with that. You know, the Olympics, every two years, you can gear your new technology leaps for the two-year uh, milestones and then migrate those technologies you find successful across your entire network and broadcast capability. So there's there's a lot going on in this world. And you mentioned in your answer, uh, towards the beginning of your answer, that many of the pivots happen when the owners of uh, some of the major hubs, uh, some of the major sects of the market face the pressure and have to pivot, right? Uh, I'm curious, do we see any workflow changes motivated by the needs of the day-to-day -day, uh, production workforce, right? The independent contractors or the hired staff that maneuver this, or do most of these major pivots happen from the top down? What's your assessment there? No, the pandemic has given much more uh, leniency toward the authority of the independent working from home. Um, it's tough, it, you know, and, and it'll have to evolve some way. Um, Facility owners 
have a need, especially showrunners and people like that, to have people under one roof for the communication of it. The last year, we worked through it pretty well without it. I'm not sure where it's going to end up, but yes, in order for people to to do a job, sometimes the the, the mandate was a, they had to do it remotely because of COVID, and they had to do that work, and they had to figure out some way to make that work. Now, there are some places that have been really hit pretty hard, and places that are facility-driven, uh, mixing stages and things like that, large color-grade rooms, but they seem to survive, a, a, good, a good portion of them. Um, Again, the work is necessary. How it gets there um, is, an, is an evolution. I don't think we've gotten to the end yet. I think it'll be some sort of hybrid thing. And once people are more comfortable overall with that, then maybe the need for real estate will be lessened and the independence will be more, um, their equipment qu uh, quotient will be stronger. And then we'll have to figure out, <laughs> we'll have to figure out what all that means when it, it comes to a business. So I want to go ahead and intersect your company more specifically into the conversation now. Um, where exactly does audio intervisual design fit into the broadcast business model and the post-production ecosystem? Go ahead and give us that overview, and then we'll follow up with some examples of your work at work. Well, AID evolved um, just like the technology did. Uh, right now, our primary focus is post-production, post-production screening rooms, uh, color grade rooms, post-production in all, in all aspects. Um, Atmos obviously is a large quotient of what happens these days. Um, we don't deal directly too much with broadcast other than some of the major network facilities that are here in Los Angeles. Um, and, and but having said that, post-production community is providing materials for broadcast and for streaming. So all that comes into play, uh, knowing what the end product needs to be. Uh, we started our integration division, I think, in 2009. Um, I, I have no, I can't count how many facilities we've been involved with. I, I don't bother trying. Uh, it is now uh, for us multi, multiple projects. Um, there's some similarities in them. Like I said, there's a lot of work in finishing, whether that be mixing or color grading, and then screening rooms, uh, all the way from small independent uh, executive rooms up to theater size. And um, and we've had a good association with the Academy, the Motion Picture Academy. We've been helping on some level with a, a portion of the new museum theater technologies, which had to do with film because uh, our in-house staff has is well experienced in understanding actually how film works. And that is part of the filmmaking legacy is to actually still project film and it's um it's a passion for a lot of people and there's still some qualities about it that are still quite attractive so i've got a few examples on deck here that i want to uh, use as context for our audience and then get some more perspective from you jim on how this reflects needs and changing workflows as well as uh, the power of collaboration across some of the various key players in the market so one of the examples of AID uh, really, I guess, living what it preaches in the industry is your work with Avid. Uh, so I know you saw a need with a lot of Avid products to um, develop more customized interfaces and API integrations for things like Pro Tools and other audio consoles. Can you break down some of that work and then connect the dots with 
why you saw a need for customizable interactions with a legacy platform like Avid being something to elevate the industry? Well, Avid is an industry leader, and I don't necessarily, they are a legacy, but they're also current. I mean, they are they're the common currency for audio post-production. We don't do a lot with them on the, on the video side, uh, editorialize. Uh, they're, obviously, their strength in broadcast would be um, something separate from what, what we invest in. But all these things require a systematic approach. You have to understand how the pieces fit together. And there are a lot of peculiarities. There are a lot of things that, um, that require some thought and experience and some deep dives to, to make it a not only productive space, but uh, a truly reliable environment. Um, down to, as I said before, what our clients do is sell time. And you, once that minute is gone, it's gone. So uh, I say this often, and it's also true in broadcast, everything's going to break. Absolutely everything's going to break. That's just how it is. The world, whether it be time, weather, whatever it is, uh, physical nature, resources, the, the concept really is how fast you can recover. So you have to anticipate those things and those issues and put that in, in, into perspective and in your designs and planning. And if you do that right, then your customer can send invoices that get paid. And in the end, that's the, that's the determining factor of success. To follow up on that, I want to offer up some more granular examples of uh, AID at work. Now what I want to do is speak more on uh, your KVM work. Uh, so this is one of the areas where IHSE, for example, has partnered more directly with companies like AID to develop some customized tools around uh, KVM workflows. So uh, let's start there. Uh, you've worked with many audio editing studios to educate them on how KVM is beneficial. Walk us through some of those processes, uh, why you've seen KVM as such a, a critical workflow to both address and improve in audio post-production and what the impact has been. Well, it's it's pretty obvious benefit. I don't think anybody questions the benefit of KVM now. The few people that don't understand it are probably people that are individuals and maybe are working on a scale where maybe it doesn't apply very well. But in the first in the first case, you have to extend keyboards, video, and mice. You have to do that unless you're comfortable with loud equipment in your room. And sometimes that's not a, not a, not a, uh, excuse me. Sometimes that's not an issue anyway. But um, in those environments where there are un, uh, resources to be shared and managed, then KVM is an obvious thing. It started obviously dealing with being having access to servers, but in the analog video environment, uh, that is problematic and, and an issue. And the first concepts of KVM based on an internet pro protocol, TCP IP, uh, were functional and useful for the time, but and there's still you know, systems out there in an IP environment that I wouldn't necessarily call advancements. Uh, they are um, emblematic of the idea of trying to take advantage of the commoditization of networking protocols. And they have valid uses in certain places, um, especially those where are, there's not a lot of day or hour or minute by minute 
sharing of resources. It's a more of a dedicated, more dedicated today I'm working on this and that's what I'm going to be working on. Where we found the natural fit for these things is that there are environments where you have a significantly fewer number of operators uh, looking and talking and listening, controlling larger number of systems. So maybe there are two operators and eight systems they're controlling and they're constantly moving back and forth between them. And the obvious difference at that point was switching time. So what we found attractive about IHSE is that it is a very robustly engineered environment. It is dedicated to this task. It's not a reapplication of other technologies per se. I mean, there are some as well. Um, and what that generates is that it becomes an appliance. Infrastructure requires the most robust and stable of circumstances. Everything else is dependent on that. If your network storage goes down, your facility is down. If the KVM goes down, your facility is down. And now when you're talking about multiple rooms, it's catastrophic. And then the ability to recover, obviously, isn't critical. So there are many features and functions within the IHSC system that lends itself to doing this. That is a dedicated system. We have, we have facilities all around Southern California and around the world, really, that have large, critical, uh, mission-critical systems in place. Um, that includes almost all the film studios, broadcasters, uh, things like that. You know, we work with a number of them. Um, I'm not at liberty to discuss too many of the people we work with because the NDAs, the NDAs we sign are long, extensive, and and uh, they take them seriously. But we have we do have a major broadcast facility that has two very very large uh, IHSC KVMs, uh, literally three eighths of a mile apart on the on the lot, doing broadcast day in day out every day multiple shows reliably and and that same on that same lot there are sound and video post-production environments all running on IHSC all connected fiber through from building to building to building it's quite a web and a complex all the way down to you know a a a recording artist who has uh, an extensive single home single studio environment where he has a KVM environment because he wants the versatility of being able to work between different things and uh, different spaces in his house and instantly monitoring security camera to see who's come delivered to his door and all the things that you would want to deal with that on. Um, then we have other facilities which are a combination of teleconferencing offices and private offices and screening rooms and post-production facilities where they want to be able to tap in and monitor and do those resources. And all that stuff comes to the idea that we have a we have an appliance that works and it works well all the time. Now, part two of that is it's not just vanilla. The IHSC technology has grown and extended itself across through all the different changes in the video world. And we're still the tail of the dog for when it comes to things like display technologies. Yes, there are high-end broadcast post-production displays, but the vast majority of, of usage are computer displays and flat-screen televisions and things like that. 
and how those standards and technologies change, whether they went from to HD to 4K, now to 8K, whether they're VGA or then DVI, then HDMI, then DisplayPort, and all those things, whether they're HDR, whether they're Dolby Vision, all those technologies are something we have to maintain and stay in front of, and IHSE excels at those sorts of things. Their design work is emblematic of uh, the highest quality in German engineering. Their development work and in, in compression designs is leading edge. Um, I know they partner on certain projects with the Fraunhofer Institute. So it is a wide choice, a wide selection of tools that they offer for implementation. And then we talk about systems design, that's critical. Uh, we cannot bend a facility's workflow just to accommodate the limitations of a KVM. And we don't generally have to do that unless it's something extreme. If somebody wants something that's non-standard, as an example, uh, if somebody were to say that they wanted 9K, well, that's 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 not a done deal. That's not a standard. That's not what that is. But um, IHSC, and I go back with them some years and have visited the factory a couple of times. And I'm in a space now where I have confidence in their products and their tools. And the real challenge is making sure we understand thoroughly the customer space and especially the customer's expectations. And then we work closely with IHSC in the US and in Germany to try and um, meet those goals. So one of the other companies that you work with, this one is one that you founded and also own, uh, Plus24. It's a media equipment distribution company. Uh, I'd say that gives you a lot of touch points with how production houses are leveraging some of the newest technologies in the space. Uh, and maybe some of the smaller but more disruptive technologies, workflows, softwares, et cetera. Uh, so I'm curious what you see as some of those technologies, right? New entrants to the space, um, uh, processes, softwares, again, that are uh, becoming industry standards, but maybe weren't even just a few years ago, and which are proving most useful for some of these new and improved workflows and why? Well, um, audio and video over IP has become standardized in some ways. There are a couple of manufacturers, one manufacturer specifically that drives, has driven that on the audio side. That's becoming a little more ubiquitous. Uh, video with the implementation of the new SMPTE standards is going to be pushed down that path as well. And it's all accelerated by the need to work remotely. Uh, sports broadcasts that where the announcers are in a studio in Connecticut, you know, some thousand miles away from the actual sport, that's become commonplace. So those technologies are where things grow. And if you do a research on the recent Olympics, you'll see that was used, implemented in a, in a significant fashion, uh, all flawlessly that worked quite well. That's where the that's where the growth is and the potential for the, that expansion is going to occur. You're still in an environment where there will be shared resources. There will be more apt and need for the ability to people to collaborate remotely. And that is another challenge that's going to have to happen. Um, and again, over IP of sorts, and, and we envision ways to bridge the IP environment with a appliance and a uh, dedicated application like uh, KVM can be, should be. That's the first thing. The second thing is, again, standards. Now that uh, Dolby Vision and Atmos are a strong contender for most 
media applications, um, high dynamic range at least, HDR, HDR10, HDR10+, some of the other products that are like that. That is uh, enhancing the user experience, not only uh, in theaters, but at home. And the prices of flat screens, what they are, um, it's going to be, <laughs> well, as usual, uh, audio keeping up with the picture will be a challenge, uh, be primarily because a 77-inch television doesn't come with 77-inch speakers. Um, but you need to work through those and make sure that's right. And when it comes to, very specifically, when it comes to post-production of any type, whether it be for making records, television shows, streamings, theaters, you have to have standards in place to, to meet. You have to have a, a quotient of quality that is expected, and that has to be common throughout the industry. That has been a challenge in the recording industry for years for music, because there really are no playback standards, haven't been. Theater of uh, cinema. Cinema was actually had the benefit of THX and those products and companies that that actually prescribed to the first set of uh, standards how that went. Um, and again, that was something that was branched out of Lucasfilm. Um, Jurassic Park, I think, was the first for DTS and those standards. So I think my point there is that when you have the ability to reach for a common goal that keeps quality in mind, and I emphasize the word quality, uh, media by the pound is, is, is what happens in certain circumstances. But if we don't enforce the concept of quality, who will? If everything is going to be reduced to the lowest common denominator, we'd still be watching black and white television on a speaker that's two inches big, right? Right, you know, and, and, and that comes from the creativity of the content maker. In the end, it's all about the content, right? If it's a great song or a great line of dialogue or a great of something, there's a creative person involved. And the more tools and opportunities you give them, the more creative they can be, the palette is bigger. And then it's our job to make sure that artist's vision gets conveyed to the end user. And in order to do that, in order to do that, you really have to care. You have to care. And, if, and the people that care aren't always the people in charge, but that's okay. Um, and that's where the industry has its evolution and changes. Jim, this has been such a great conversation so far. Thank you for all your context and insights. The last uh, question that I want to pose your way is more one of strategy, right? So we've talked a lot about how um, these workflows have changed over the last 40 years. We've rewinded the clock big time. And then even just more recently, how pandemic challenges, market demands, the push for streaming, for example, have also uh, placed new pressures on the day-to-day post-production workflows. So with the solutions in mind that you've laid out and the ease of access for KVM workflows, for example, the way that that is being validated at the work table and not just the IT backroom, what strategies would you offer uh, decision makers as well as just the professionals themselves, even the independent contractors, for uh, you know advocating for some of these shifts, right? Where do you start? How do you identify your needs and the right solution? Well, the first thing you have to do is identify very clearly what the customer, what the user's situation is. You have to do a good job of listening. Um, if I don't understand what it is they're trying to do or what their goals are, I can't give them a solution that's going to meet them. So that's the first thing, um, understanding their business without getting into 
know, too much detail. I mean, their business is their business and I've treated it as such. You can best, you can best help them by not only listening, but by educating and giving them the opportunities. We don't, we don't make compromises when we do our designs. We explain the optimum system designs and concepts and explain the compromises to the end user and let them make their choices because they know their business best. They know they can manage this, manage that, what's important, what's not important. They all have limitations. We all have limitations. My room is not big enough. My room is too big. I have too many rooms. I don't have enough rooms. My staff is great. My staff is new. My staff, whatever, all those things that come to play. I've got clients that never show up. I've got clients that micromanage. I've got all this, all this environment is very difficult place by place by place by place, just as well as personalities. So that's the, really the first thing. And as far as the, the technologies, that's where the anticipation and discussion education occur. They might have a question. They might ask about Dante. They might ask about Dolby Vision. They might ask about some of these things, how they work. Uh, some networking solutions and concepts. And you have to assume that on some level, your customer is always smarter than you are because they know their business. And uh, you have to have some integrity there to understand that when those circumstances arise to be, do a good job and listen. And some, some facilities we work with, they have brilliant engineering staffs, just brilliant. Um, there are some facilities that have no engineering staff, none. It's just operators and you have to treat them differently. So when you, when you talk about technology and those, those, that kind of bifurcated uh, situations, you have to style and, and tailor your discussion and concepts accordingly. The last thing I should say about that is that um, everyone, uh, everyone has an idea what they want when they walk into the discussion and it really is a challenge and a skill to be able to say the word no, that's not right. And to me, you do a disservice if you just let people make a decision based on insufficient evidence or something or just a misconception or, um, or you know, it's very typical, you know, the business size of thing wants business size of, of, of an of a entity maybe wants one thing that's really not practical or possible and you have to help they have to help the people who are going to design and build that understand that enough so that they can explain and, and set their business people's expectations so the end users the clients their clients expectations are set correctly so you really have to sort of we, we tend to try and sit on their side of the table if I have a customer, a client, I sit on their side of the table. We look out at the world together and see how we face those challenges and put that together. And we build long-term relationships. That's really what AID has been about for, that's why we've been around. We've had our competitors, have, some have stuck around, but a lot have come and gone. Um, I, try, I try to instill the idea with our people that we want to do what's best for the people we work with. We have entrusted us with, with uh, you know, their future, really. Uh, because they're taking risks to do these things, and uh, I just want to do it right, do them right, and um, and yeah, so far it's worked. It's okay. Well, hey, pushing up on forty years now, clearly you're doing something right. 
And I think that ethos is really one to hammer home, uh, especially in an industry with so many players and so many market demands that are sometimes out of the control of the post-production professionals, often really out of the control of the post-production professional. Uh, it's so important to keep your boots on the ground, right? Keep your ear to the ground, really understand what are their needs? How are these market demands, technology changes impacting their processes? And where can we come in to help alleviate some of those workflows to make them more efficient? And at the end of the day, make uh, the end user, person watching a show on Netflix, or the client, the person who's requested some post-production work, keeping them happy, right? Another end goal. You're right. It's absolutely right. We have to keep the end user in mind. Now, I don't think the day goes by what I don't learn 10 things. Right? And that's that's what I enjoy. That's what part of it I enjoy. I'm always learning, and, and I learn and try to keep some objective uh, objectivity to to what I understand and what people are telling me. And believe me, I've heard enough manufacturers' spiels over the last decades to understand what's marketing fodder and what's real, and what real quite what questions need to be asked. And uh, maybe that's our skill. Love that you cut through the mess and the noise, and you get right to the real stuff that matters. All right, Jim, thank you so much for your time today. You really set the bar high here for our first guest on the show. So thank you again for your time. Again, folks, we've been chatting with Jim Pace. He's owner of Audio Intervisual Design, which is an AV reseller, designer, and integrator, providing tools for the creative community. Jim, if folks want to get in touch with you, they want to source more of your thought leadership, or they want to potentially collaborate with either AID or any of your other companies, how can they learn more? How can they get in touch? Well, uh, we have our websites, obviously, AIDinc.com, AIDinc.com. We have plus24.net, and you can always call our offices. We actually still have a human that answers the phone, uh, so it's a, you're not going to get caught in a rotor tool. Um, but, yeah, please be very welcome be welcome to uh, speak with anyone. Thank you. Love it. Jim, thank you again for your time. We'll chat again soon. Thanks very much. And thank you, everyone, for watching this episode of Direct Connections, an IHSE podcast. If you like what you heard and saw, you want to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, or you want to tap into some more IHSE thought leadership, make sure you're heading to our website, IHSE.com, as well as subscribing to Direct Connections on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Direct Connections.